Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us on Zoom or in the building Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. For the Zoom link, please contact tikvatdirector at gmail.com or contact us on our website, tikvatisrael.com. There you can also support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and find helpful resources. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. This morning, I would like to talk about the President. Now, before you begin to throw tomatoes at me for what you anticipate, I'm about to say, just take note. I never said which president I wanted to talk about. The president I want to talk about is the 16th person to hold the office, Abraham Lincoln. I remember how exciting it was when the film Lincoln was filmed here in Richmond and in Petersburg. Some local actors I know were in the film as extras, and seeing a face you know that's supposed to be in 1860s Richmond is quite jarring. It kind of takes you out of the story for a moment. But there was one face in the movie that drew me into the story every time, that of Sir Daniel Day-Lewis, which seemed to reflect the face of Lincoln himself. Daniel Day-Lewis is famous for truly inhabiting the, the characters that he plays. I mean, the list of awards and honors on his Wikipedia page is a separate page linked from the main bio. You click on that and it's, it's, it's quite remarkable. When I saw him on screen, I felt as though I was seeing the face of Lincoln. You could see the pain, the, the pathos, the compassion etched into his face as he spoke to his wife about the death of their four-year-old son, Eddie, or when he told jokes to encourage the downtrodden troops, or when he persuaded leaders in Congress to move toward unity and the abolition of slavery. Doris Kearns, Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, Team of Rivals, explains the genius and humility of Lincoln. The title itself is a reference to how Lincoln invited his political enemies into his own cabinet. That's why it's called Team of Rivals. And uh, he won them over one by one. It's very, very uh, remarkable. Many think of Lincoln as suffering from depression, but Goodwin paints another picture similar to how Daniel Day-Lewis portrayed him in the movie. This is a quote from her book. Before I began this book, Aware of the sorrowful aspect of his features and the sadness attributed to him by his contemporaries, I had assumed that Lincoln suffered from chronic depression. Yet with the exception of two despondent episodes in his early life that are described in this story, there is no evidence that he was immobilized by depression. On the contrary, even during the worst days of the war, he retained his ability to function at a very high level. To be sure, he had a melancholy temperament, but most likely imprinted on him from birth. But melancholy differs from depression. It is not an illness. It does not proceed from a specific cause. It is an aspect of one's nature. 
It has been recognized by artists and writers for centuries as a potential source of creativity and achievement. Moreover, Lincoln possessed an uncanny understanding of his shifting moods, a profound self-awareness that enabled him to find constructive ways to alleviate sadness and stress. Indeed, when he's compared with his colleagues, it is clear that he possessed the most even-tempered disposition of them all. Time and again, he was the one who dispelled his colleagues' anxiety and sustained their spirits with his gift for storytelling and his life-affirming sense of humor. When resentment and contention threatened to destroy his administration, he refused to be provoked by petty grievances, to submit to jealousy, or to brood over perceived slights. Through the appalling pressures he faced day after day, he retained an unflagging faith in his country's cause." Unquote. This description is what I saw in the Lincoln movie, a man of sorrows, of pathos, acquainted with suffering, but not a man of depression. Lincoln was also famously awkward and, to put it bluntly, unattractive. Here again is Goodwin's book with a description of him while he was a lawyer in Springfield, Illinois. Lincoln's shock of black hair, brown furrowed face, and deep-set eyes made him look older than his 51 years. He was a familiar figure to almost everyone in Springfield, as was his singular way of walking, which gave the impression that his long, gaunt frame needed oiling. He plodded forward in an awkward manner, hands hanging at his sides or folded behind his back. His step had no spring. His partner, William Herndon, called. He lifted his whole foot at once, rather than lifting from the toes, and then thrust the whole foot down on the ground, rather than landing on his heel. His legs, another observed, uh, seemed to drag from the knees down, like those of a laborer going home after a hard day's work. His features, even his supporters conceded, were not such as belong to a handsome man. In repose, his face was so overspread with sadness, the reporter Horace White noted, that it seemed as if Shakespeare's melancholy Jacques had been translated from the forest of Arden to the capital of Illinois. Yet, when Lincoln began to speak, White observed, this expression of sorrow dropped from him instantly. His face lighted up with a winning smile, and where I had a moment before seen only leaden sorrow, now I beheld keen intelligence, genuine kindness of heart, and the promise of true friendship. If his appearance seemed somewhat odd, his ca he ca what captivated admirers, another contemporary observed, was his winning manner, his ready good humor, and his unaffected kindness and gentleness. Five minutes in his presence, and you cease to think that he is either homely or awkward." Unquote. In other words, Lincoln had nothing in his appearance that drew people to him, but rather it was the warmth of his character. But one thing is clear. Lincoln knew some Tsuris. Do we remember what Tsuris is? Yes, right? Troubles, anxiety, suffering. The last time I preached, we moved from Tsuris to Shalom. That was two weeks ago, and we learned how to apply the rational part of our brain to the animal part to manage our anxiety. Tsuris, however, as I mentioned, isn't just anxiety. It's troubles, anguish, suffering. In our reading cycle, we are currently in the Haftarah portions of Consolation, of which there are seven. We mourned on Tishba'av 
And now we are reading through the second part of Isaiah, which provides consolation and encouragement in our suffering. And these are difficult times. People are hurting. But perhaps there is a way to move not only from Surus to Shalom, but from Surus to healing. I mentioned this in our Tishbaav service, but there is a painter I especially admire. Marc Chagall was a Jewish painter born in Belarus who lived in France and Russia. He had Hasidic parents and grew up in the shtetl, which is the Jewish ghetto, which later influenced his work. By the Second World War, Chagall was in danger. In 1937, Nazi officials purged German work museums of works the party considered to be degenerate. In March of 1939, over 1,000 paintings and almost 4,000 watercolors and drawings of modern, modern Jewish artists, including Marc Chagall, uh, Kandinsky, Paul Klee, Piet Mondrian, and Frank Franz Marc, were burned in the courtyard of the fire station in Berlin. As a high-profile Jew, he was put on a list of artists whose lives were at risk from the Nazis. And fortunately, in 1941, he escaped to America. Chagall and his wife, Bella, arrived in New York the day after Germany invaded the Soviet Union. Here are some colorized photos of Chagall at work. So here you can see his face as he's painting. And uh, it's, just, it's just remarkable to see. And here's another one. And he, it, you can see the types of things that he paints, right? He paints, uh, he's deeply rooted in our Jewish religious tradition. And so he has a man here with a Torah, and you can see him working on it. Chagall was fascinated, drawn to the figure of Yeshua. Even though his rabbi urged him not to, he continually painted Yeshua on the cross, connecting his suffering and death with the suffering of the Jewish people. Let's hold off, Gordon, on, on this part for now. So, his rabbi urged him not to, but he continued to paint Yeshua on the cross, connecting the suffering and death of Yeshua with the suffering and death of the Jewish people. Here's a quote from Chagall from the newspaper Haaretz, and he uses the word Christ, which I have preserved, even though we usually say Messiah in our community. This is what Chagall said. For me, Christ has always symbolized the true type of Jewish martyr. That is how I understood him in 1908, when I used this figure for the first time. It was under the influence of the pogroms. There, then I painted and drew him in pictures about ghettos, surrounded by Jewish troubles, by Jewish mothers, running terrified with little children in their arms, unquote. So, let's check out a few of his Yeshua paintings. So here we see... Um, he's actually depicted the Jewish people on the cross. And there's a man on the roof, the fiddler on the roof motif with, with the Torah. It's very interesting. Another picture of Yeshua. You notice in a lot of these, he's wearing a talit, right? Um, he's depicting him as a Jew. And you see all around him is the suffering of our people. And another Torah there in the, on the side. This is very interesting. See here, he is looking toward this white uh, wind that's coming from the Torah, but he's also looking at his painting of Yeshua, and he's trying to connect them. 
but he feels a little bit like he's looking, he can't look at both of them at the same time, right? But we, in fact, we would say they do go together. But uh, he's painting, he painted himself painting Yeshua on the tree. It's very interesting. This picture is on the cover of David Rudolph's book, Intro to Messianic Judaism, because he was looking for a picture of, of Yeshua painted as a Jew, and this is one of the only uh, paintings that shows him that way. Again, you have the talit, and you, have, uh, you even have the tefillin, right, which religious Jews wear, and you have, again, the Torah. Notice also all the destruction that's all around him, all the suffering of our people, the fires. Thank you, Gordon. And this brings us to this week's Haftarah portion in Isaiah. Well, actually, it almost brings us to this week's Haftarah portion. As Meggie mentioned, this week the portion is Isaiah 52. We sang a song, uh, Dave, one of David's songs that he chose was from this week's portion. Uh, how lovely are the feet who bring good news. Next week, the portion is Isaiah 54. For some reason, I don't know, Isaiah 53 is skipped in the Jewish community. However, for those of us who have been through difficult times, who know Tzuris, this chapter is profoundly comforting. So let's put it back in the reading cycle, shall we? All right. I'd like us to read excerpts of this chapter together. Uh, and as we do, let's remember the portrait of Lincoln that we discussed, a man of sorrows and compassion who had nothing in his form that attracted us to him except for the humility and grace of his character. And let's remember Chagall's paintings of Yeshua as a Jew who suffers with his people. And I encourage you to meditate on these words of Isaiah, which was written around 700 BCE, well before Yeshua ever appeared. And I encourage you to really image the suffering servant in your mind. It's something that we Jews don't typically like to think about, but it's important. It's important for moving from tsuris, for moving from suffering and hurt into healing, that we focus on this figure. The text actually starts in Isaiah 52, verse 13, where this week's traditional Haftarah portion ends. So let's read it responsively, and the bold parts uh, we can read together as a community. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up, greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was disfigured more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they had not been told, they will see. And what had not, they had not heard, they will perceive. Who has believed our report? To whom is the arm of Adonai revealed? Together. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. 
He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nor beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our pains, yet we esteemed him stricken, struck by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities, our sins. The chastisement for our shalom was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way, so Adonai has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Because of oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression, the sin of my people, the stroke was theirs. His grave was given with the wicked, and by a rich man in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased Adonai to bruise him, he caused him to suffer. If he makes his soul a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days. The will of Adonai will succeed by his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion with the great. He will divide the spoil with the mighty, because he poured out his soul to death and was counted with transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. And I'd like to point out, you notice that he's pouring his soul out to death, and yet he's also receiving a reward after that. So, the only way that the Lord could do that is if he raised him. The Talmud refers to this passage and says, the Messiah will be the leper scholar, the one who teaches Torah, though he is afflicted and rejected like a leper, who is made unclean who suffers physically and emotionally, who is humiliated among his own people. So how should we respond to this? The beginning of chapter 53 asks the question, who has believed our report? Our first step is to trust this report, trust this story, that it brings healing. Then we need to invite Yeshua into these broken places of our hearts. Maybe we've let him in to some places, but there is still more healing that he wants to do. Mishpucha, his suffering brings restoration for us. In our affliction, in our struggle to make it, may we look, may we image the leper scholar, the afflicted one. He is our comfort. He is our healing and restoration. By connecting to the suffering and death of Yeshua in our hearts, we are transformed. 
the Apostle Shaul puts it like this, I have been crucified with Messiah. It is no longer I who live, but Messiah lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Worthy. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. His body bruised, his blood poured out, mocked, left alone by all his friends, rejected and despised, disfigured and beaten down. Worthy is the leper scholar, the wounded healer, Worthy is the man of sorrows who carries our grief, who carries our pains, carries our hearts. May he bring you from service, from your troubles and your suffering to healing, from mourning to joy. May he lift up your face and wipe every tear from your eyes. The shofar is sounding. <laughs> May we look to him and find restoration. Let's pray. Avinu, Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you sent your son, Yeshua, to take our place and to bring us healing. We thank you that you know what it's like. You know what it's like to hurt. We don't have a God that, that can't relate. We have a God that's, that's been through it and that can bring us healing. And it's as though our suffering, because we suffer with you, Lord Yeshua, that it's transformed into healing because you went to the tree and died in our place and suffered in our place. And all the things that we deserved because of our sins, you took upon yourself and it was as if you said you did that. And we just thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for the reality of that and we pray that you would bring more and more healing into our hearts and we pray that you would empower us to tell this report tell this story to Israel and to the nations that you would be made known. The shofar is sounding again. <laughs> you would be made known as the good king, the good shepherd, the leper scholar, the man of sorrows. And in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.